This is the Mile High Five podcast with Carl Jensen and Doug Cunnington. We have authentic conversations about the journey to Phi, health, happiness, and some very odd tangents. We interview Phi experts, side hustlers, people on their way to Phi, and those who have reached the other side. Join us every week, and if you want the show notes and links and all that other stuff, head over to milehighfi.com. Hello, world. Welcome to the Mile High Fi podcast. Today, we have Kyle Landis Marinello, who is an environmental lawyer and personal finance enthusiast. He even wrote a book called Personal Finance and Investing. Doug and I met Kyle at Economy and bonded over beers. Too many beers. Both times. <laughs> anyway, Kyle was on episode 76, Make More, Spend Less, Invest Wisely. So check that one out to hear more about Kyle's story. Today, we're going to talk about financial mistakes we have all made. Kyle, what's happening? You're in town. You are in the studio. This is pretty awesome. First time in Longmont, right? It is. Yeah. I was out here for an environmental law conference last week and uh, reached out to you guys and this time worked out to hang out. So it's great to be here in person. Is that kind of conference fun? Like what do people, I guess they talk about environmental law at the environmental law conference. That was a stupid question. but. <laughs> Have you been to one of these before? Yeah, I, I go to one or two every year, and um, it actually is a lot of fun because, uh, I, I mean, you learn about the latest developments in the law, and at this one, I was actually a speaker, um, so clearly, they don't have very high standards for who they <laughs> bring out of the stage there. Um, and then, but the fun part is going on a regular basis, I see a lot of the same people, so same how uh, the Economy Conference going back the second or third time for people is a lot more fun because you recognize folks there. Uh, I, even these work conferences, I see a lot of the people I hung out with the last time and we have fun and uh, usually stay up later than we should and regret yeah. it the next morning. And then have you been to the Denver area or Colorado before? Yeah. When I was uh, in high school and college, I was whitewater kayaking all the time. That was the focus of my life and that inevitably brings you out west. And so, I uh, did a couple of races on the course in Golden and um, yeah, I've been through Denver in this area a few times, but never Longmont. Cool. So, people can go back and listen to the the full episode to hear your entire story or a lot of it. But can you give like a 90 second intro? We know you're a lawyer, you're into water sports, and this is probably a better way to say that. But so Kyle, yeah, what, what are you all about? Yeah. Um, so I, I've done environmental and energy law uh, ever since I graduated law school 15 years ago. Uh, I went the public interest route and um, uh, as I've now learned as I've gotten into personal finance, uh, that was an even worse financial decision than I <laughs> knew I was making at the time. Um, but I don't regret it. It's the uh, what drives me. It's what I'm passionate about. And uh, I do feel good about the work that I do. And um, yeah, as I was approaching the 10-year mark for getting my uh, $230,000 in student loans forgiven um, through the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, I realized for the first time uh, we could start making real progress in our finances and um, got into learning about personal finance and really did a deep dive uh, into uh, podcasts, books, and everything I could get my hands on and um, 
the way I, I learn is through research and writing. And so it kind of led to me working on a book as I was going through it myself. And I try to make the book entertaining by putting in lots of stories about uh, my dad, who I love and he's brilliant, but um, he has made just about every financial mistake you can imagine, despite being one of the smartest people I know. And so there's a lot of those stories weaved in to keep people entertained. Because I say, no one learns anything if you fall asleep. Yeah. And so before you went on that deep dive, were you aware of the fire movement at all or you just ran across it through all your research? Yeah, I was not aware of the fire movement before that. I, um, you know, my wife and I have always been frugal uh, just by necessity. And um, yeah, so a lot of that we we kind of knew already, but um, everything else was pretty new to me. And um, And it's interesting, you know, when I was at the attorney general's office, I spent about eight years there in environmental protection. I was working on the same floor as the consumer protection folks. And uh, I, I saw the work that they were doing, going after companies that were um, doing payday loans to people who needed cash at the moment and just charging the most outrageous interest rates you can imagine. And seeing lots of other things that banks and um, other financial products were using to take advantage of people. And uh, I, I had those ideas in mind as I learned about financial independence. And I think one of the things that doesn't always come up in the conversation is that you can be smart, you can be diligent, you can uh, really do your homework and think you're doing everything right. But there's someone at some company that wants to eke a few more dollars out of you doing something that uh, is illegal a lot of times and they get away with it a lot. And so um, that's part of my interest in personal finance as well is just giving people information so they can protect themselves against all the companies out there that will take advantage of you and will take your money if you give them half a chance. Consumer protection, that reminds me of the cornballer episode of Arrested Development. <laughs> do you remember that one, Doug? Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah. Did, did you ever watch that show, Kyle? Or? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember that one that the cornballer would burn I, this shit out of people? I do. I, do you guys happen to have one? I could go for some cornballs. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it looks so good. <laughs> and then they just, for people that didn't watch the show, this is just irrelevant, but we'll just keep going down this route. But then they started selling it in Mexico. They're like, we can't sell it in America. We'll sell it south of the border. Yeah. And then they, uh, the infomercials were then in Spanish. Yeah. Has <laughs> anything it, like that ever happened, Kyle? Or uh, yeah, you can't it, sell it here, so they push it to some other country that has lesser protections? So it's, it's really sad, but uh, it's happened more than you would imagine. Um, there's, so in the environmental law world, uh, it takes a while, but eventually harmful, toxic products do get outlawed. And they're often, it's actually not usually the U.S. that's first. It's usually a country in Europe that uh, outlaws a product and then the U.S. follows shortly after. But then you have a lot of countries that haven't outlawed it. And um, yeah, sadly, there is a history of um, those products being shipped off to those other countries to be sold there. And I mean, completely unethical. Um, but technically uh, allowed at the time. And um, yeah, not a good way to do business. I don't think those people sleep well at night. 
Oof, not good. Yeah. Well, that's a perfect transition over to our topic of the day, biggest mistakes that we've made. And I think there's a focus on financial, right? So we'll do financial mistakes and we'll kick off with our guests. And we're each going to go around, present um, our, our dumbest or biggest mistake, and then uh, make fun of each other. I think that's what's going to happen. This is an unusual episode. We're recording in the afternoon and we're actually drinking beer for the, the listeners out there. We're uh, sampling. It's, it's kind of an experimental thing. And I don't know if I love it. I made it, but I don't know if I love it. So it's a Belgian beer. It's like one and a half to two percent. So what do you what do you guys think of it? I'm not super schooled on Belgian beers, but I don't know. I think it tastes pretty good. Cool. Yeah, it's good. And right. at that low ABV, it's like basically hydrating. It is. Yeah. And I mean, I dry hopped it, so there's a little there's some hop character, and there's like a little banana aroma, which is that's the Belgian part. Do you smell the banana? I do. Yeah. Okay. All right, so now we can move on and Kyle, biggest mistake. Yeah, so I'll admit, I didn't really rank them or think of them in terms of the largest amount of dollars. Uh, I focused more on what would make for a good story. Good. (laughs) Uh, And the first one that came to mind um, was because I'm visiting you at your place, Doug, and I know you went to Georgia Tech and... A buddy of mine who lives out here in Lyons uh, also went to Georgia Tech and he gave me a ride here this afternoon. I'm going to see him tonight. And um, he uh, took me to Georgia Tech for an interview when I was a high, high school senior. And I knew him from kayaking. And um, uh, since he was already there, I figured he would know where to take me. And uh, uh, But classic Scott, he was running late. And so, when I get to campus, I'm actually worried I'm going to be late to my interview. And this is for a presidential scholarship. And so, a lot of money Mm -hmm. at stake. And I'd only applied to three colleges and Georgia Tech was one of them. And um, uh, so, I really wanted to do well at the interview. But we arrive a little late and I just have to run across campus to get there on time. And I get there and I meet the people who are interviewing me and they're on one side of the table and then I'm on the other side, but it's only a few feet between us. And I sit down and as I sit down, I notice that my fly is wide open (laughs) (laughs) and I just see my boxer shorts just showing through my pants. And uh, of course, I realize in that moment, the pants I had worn, I had that problem. Whenever I ran, the fly <laughs> would come down. And uh, it, it just never even occurred to me to get a different pair of pants to wear to an interview. And that was probably the worst interview I've ever had because I couldn't even hear the questions they were asking. All I could think about was how am I going to get out of here without them noticing that my fly is down? <laughs> and uh, so... Uh, not surprisingly, I did not get that scholarship. I, I lucked out and did get a, uh, an even better scholarship at Emory University where I ended up going. Um, but yeah, if I had got a better pair of pants, then uh, maybe I would have had that scholarship money available to me as well. Oh, man, that's rough. That's really rough. Carl, do you have any tips for keeping your fly up? 
I don't know. We were talking about <laughs> if everyone listens to the sound check, we were talking about pants. Are your fancy, what are they, Banana Republic pants? Do they ever have this issue before? <laughs> you know, I, number one, I didn't have to run in them. So I'm not sure, but we could try it out later. <laughs> I don't know. No, they, they usually stay up pretty good. If, if my fly is not up, it's my own fault for, you know, not remembering. Yeah, it's weird. You know, I have had this issue with a pair of pants or shorts. I don't remember. Oh, it's a pair of shorts because Mindy's always pointing it out to me. So, yeah, I don't know what the solution is. When we come out with Kyle clothing, our, and again, listen to the sound check to hear what we're talking about. We will have pants that guarantee the zipper will stay up. We can even have like a safety thing, like a clasp, so the zipper yeah. guaranteed not to come down. What about um, Velcro, a Velcro fly? <laughs> I don't know. It's just an idea. It'd be fast acting. Remember when jeans had button flies on them, which yeah. was a stupid idea. If you really had to go, you're fidgeting there with the buttons. And yeah. can't get they were supposed to be super comfortable, but I don't, I had, I had a one pair of button flies and I don't remember them being like much more comfortable than other jeans. But I guess your fly doesn't come down. Yeah, I guess not. We'll have buttons on our pants. <laughs> I think the problem with Velcro is that when you sit down, like it could uh, open up then and it would announce to the world that your fly was opened by <laughs> making that sound Velcro makes. Yeah. So Kyle, how did you get out of the situation? Like, did you have to stand up and kind of put your hand in front or what <laughs> happened there? Yeah, I had to uh, literally like grab my shirt and kind of hold it over as I stood up which was probably like just bringing attention to the fact that my <laughs> fly was down. <laughs> so, but oh, Scott was there when I, uh, I finished the interview. He was picking me up afterwards and um, the interview had actually gone long. And uh, so I was running back to the car where he was because I didn't want him to have to wait for me. <laughs> so I get back to the car. And when Scott tells this story, I should have had him do it here <laughs> and he was earlier. He'll actually pull his T-shirt out of his zipper and <laughs> say that was how I looked when I arrived. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. That's a pretty good one. So, uh, do you have another one? So, you can tee up two here and then we'll go around. Sure. Yeah. So, um, I, I think that, and this is a common one, especially for folks uh, my age. I'm in my early 40s. Um, but it was waiting too long before learning about financial independence and uh, uh, personal finance, learning about investing. And that's something, it's still a conversation I need to have with my wife about how do we kind of get our three kids up to speed on some of this? How do we involve them in uh, money discussions early on? Because I know that's what you're supposed to do. I know the research pans that out, but it's actually hard to do in practice. And um, uh, some of my kids are already resistant to talking at all about money. And um, uh, but I do want them to learn at least the basics as early as possible, uh, rather than what most people do, which is quite frankly, most people never learn about this. Uh, but there are a lot of us who come into it when you're already in your 30s, 40s, 50s. And um, uh, at that point, you've just got fewer options for what to do. There's still a lot you can do. But um, as we all know, compound interest, the earlier you start, the better. And uh, until a time machine is invented, um, you've yeah. got limited options when you get older in, in life when you first learn about it. How old are your kids? They are 15, 12, and 10. 
Would they know what an index fund is, if I asked? No. <laughs> Even though I've written a book that <laughs> talks in depth about uh, index funds, only one of my kids has read the book. And uh, she didn't actually read the whole thing. She just skipped through to see the funny stories about grandpa. <laughs> kids are pretty difficult. You can tell, like we have two, but they're so different. You can tell both of them one thing and they'll react completely different to it. But I, I think our kids do know what an index fund is. Not that they'll do anything great with the knowledge, but the other morning we were talking about, uh, Minnie and I were on the Remit Sadie podcast and we were talking about it and our older one comes up and we're like, hey, Claire, do you think we're, we're too focused on money? Do we talk about too much? And she's like, you talk about money all the time. I wish you both would just shut up. <laughs> like, all righty then. <laughs> yeah. One of our kids is in, into it, our middle child, uh, and he he talks about becoming an electrician after he graduates high school. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that like not taking on student loans and um, quite frankly, a lot of electricians are making more money than I make now <laughs> being 15 years out of uh, law school and with all the loans I took on to do that. And, you know, environmental law is my field and... Um, if you want to make an impact on the ground in the environmental world right now, becoming an electrician is arguably the best thing anyone can do because uh, the the work in that field now is moving people away from fossil fuels and towards electrified transportation, heating, and uh, all that requires skilled electricians to upgrade people's homes, to upgrade the grid. And they just aren't out there now. And so the ones who are doing that work, same with a lot of the other trades like plumbing, things like that, um, they're in high demand and they can make a lot of good money doing it. Yeah. You could specialize in photovoltaics and probably just make a whole career out of that. Out here, they're pretty popular, but most electricians you call won't touch them. They won't have anything to do with it. Hmm. So, yeah. Pretty cool. All right. We'll start uh, going around a little bit before... Before we do, though, we should talk about the Buy Me a Coffee page that we have. So we're not we're not doing ads. We're not taking ads on in this podcast, and it's costing us a lot of money. So we need your help. No ads unless someone wants to give us money to show their product. Yeah. So basically, the Buy Me a Coffee is just a donation. We're never going to, you know, hold back, uh, you know, our actual podcast. But if you do donate, then you get a little extra content. Just today, I think, Carl, you posted uh, a nice little post. It was uh, something from the heart. You want to quickly summarize and tell us what it was? Yeah, I did. I talked about how what FIRE means to me, how it started out as something to do with money. I Googled, how do I retire early? I found Mr. Money Mustache. I got all my finances together so I could retire. But it has evolved and the cool thing is it applies to what's going on here right now. My favorite thing about FIRE right now is the community. We get to go to Economy and see Kyle for two years straight. And now he's here in the studio and all the great friends, all the people we have at the HQ are going to go to an event tonight. And that's what FIRE does for me now. That's uh, why it's important to me now. Um, so anyway, if you want to get cool messages like that, you can check out the Buy Me a Coffee. We'll put a link in there. You can donate uh, just a one-time thing, or you can uh, sign up for the monthly, which is really good. It helps us plan out. And really, all that we've done with the money so far is recoup some of the expenses for the last couple of years, which ran into the thousands of dollars. And then 
um, Carl made a small financial mistake and he bought a shitload of t-shirts. So we, we gave out a bunch of t-shirts. Kyle's wearing one right now. We just gave them out. We didn't charge for any of these. We just gave them out at economy. So we're actually like just giving back to the people that listen. So check it out. Okay. Carl, tell us about some other financial mistakes that you've made aside from the t-shirts. <laughs> I love the t-shirts. I'm just... Wait till you see what I come up with next. <laughs> Custom Crocs in honor of Kyle. <laughs> Those could be part of the Kyle clothing line. Kyle with a K clothing line. It's going to be awesome. Uh, real quick, Kyle, if you came out with your own line of Crocs, what color would they be or what style would they be? Like camo or black or what would they be? Well, those are already available. So I'd have to think of something different. I like this pink flamingo you have here, Doug, for those who are watching on YouTube. I think there should be a pair of Crocs with pink flamingos on it. So the Crocs would have like a flamingo head on the front. Yeah. Okay. You could like go underwater and hold them above your head and people would think they're actual flamingos. <laughs> My neighbor's uh, marketing for Crocs. I'll, I'll talk to her. I'll make sure you get some kind of royalty should this come to fruition. Yeah, my biggest money mistake, I think it's actually, this one might be a little unconventional, but I think it's having too much of a scarcity mindset and not spending enough, especially when I was younger. I, I talk to people now, my siblings, one of them, and other people who do all these cool things in college. I might go spend a year abroad or take a gap year, uh, just take some time off work while they're, while they're single or before having kids. And live life a little bit and, and see the world. And I was always too afraid to do that because I thought I had to work, work, work and no stop. Uh, the sad thing is I don't think I ever had more than a week off of work in my entire career, maybe like a week and a day because there was a holiday the following Monday. But yeah, isn't that crazy? Doug's looking at me like I'm nuts, as he should. But wh what the hell was wrong with me? Why didn't I take more time off and have some, even in between jobs, like that would have been a perfect opportunity, right? I was going to say I took like six weeks off once between jobs and like went to Yellowstone and, you know, did some handful of things. Yeah. That's the, that, that is a mistake. That's a mistake. Yeah. yeah. If you're young and listen and listening to this, uh, especially now back when I, I'm kind of old now, but when I was young, jobs were a little bit different. We didn't have, I think we have a looser contract with our employers now, but now it's the perfect opportunity. I know a lot of companies not only support sabbaticals, but they encourage them because you're going to clear your mind and maybe become a better employee when you come back, come back with fresh ideas and recharge. So don't do what I did. Take more than a week off before you turn 40 or before you have kids or sometime while you're young. As soon as possible, you know, you get those vacation days and I, I mean, I took time off, but people end up hoarding the days. So like whenever I left the job, I was always at the the max amount that I could carry over. And then I would just get paid out whenever, whenever I left the job. So Carl, what are you doing now to spend some more money? Well, number one, I'm taking the rest of my life off. I'm never, ever going back to a full-time job, but spending money. Okay. We bought the concert for 10,000 bucks, uh, August 26th, if you're in town, Kyle, uh, we're going on our fancy Hawaii trip where we'll go, we're going to do the helicopter ride, zip lining. So we're approaching the trip that we're going to do what we want to do and not even look at how much it costs. Although I did peek at the helicopter and that's not yeah. super cheap, but. Yeah. How much does that cost per person? I think it's about $350 per person. And we're paying a little bit extra to have a nicer ride. Nice. Uh, what else to spend money on? 
What oh. does that mean? Like they close the doors before takeout? <laughs> yeah. No, no. The, the good thing is they keep the doors open, which is cool. You're strapped <laughs> they pay in. extra to keep the doors open. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. And they're like, no flip-flops, or I think they call them slippers in Hawaii because those could fall off and uh, yeah. land in the tropical rainforest of Kauai. Gotcha. <laughs> what else do you get extra for the, I guess, the extra money for the helicopter ride? You get a smaller, it's not a six-seater or an eight-seater, it's a five-seater. So the pilot is on the front left, and then there's a middle front seat, and that is the only passenger who will not sit next to a window. So then there's two in the back and one to the right. Got it. So Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, and I, you know, just in the last, I don't know, six, eight months, I have seen, yeah, you're you're spending some more money. You're like, I don't know, buying some convenience and buying back some more time, so... You're making progress. I like it. it. Doug and I are going to have a big announcement soon. It involves a book, but part of it is we're going to go up to your fancy, what is it? Melonhead? Melanzana? Melanzana. Yeah. It's a clothing store. It's so fancy. This is kind of like the Rodeo Drive of <laughs> of Colorado, of the mountains. You have to make an appointment to shop there, right? You can't even just walk yeah. in off the street. Is that true? That's right. I I think, um, well, and the thing is, it's going to, it's like in August. So it's like m- several months out, like the very end of August is the first appointment that I could get. So are you serious? Yeah. I needed to chat with you to make sure we could like take a day off on like a Wednesday and drive out there. Oh my God. So. That's crazy. Well, maybe we could have a, uh, another session up there in the mountains Yeah, j- just to go to that store and, and work on our project. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Any other uh, mistakes, Carl? My other mistake was we had an investment back in 2016 where we had the opportunity to buy into a trailer park. We did that and that worked out fine. It outperformed the S&P 500. But what I sold to buy that investment was Apple stock. And if you've paid attention to Apple since it happened, that was a very, very poor move. I, I was smarter than I, or I, I was too smart for my own good or too dumb for my own good. Well, you never know. You never know what the stocks are going to do, but it seemed like a good idea at the time, I guess. Well, it was a bad idea. I thought the phone market was saturated, but little did I realize that people just trade in their old ones for new ones when they come out. And also, Apple is doing pretty well with their services business. So I think their their services like their TV platform and Apple Pay and all that shit is, that alone is bigger than like most companies in the world. And they're what are those AirPod things? Those things mm-hmm. you have those, right, Doug? Yeah. That's like I think their AirPods business is one of the top like twenty biggest businesses in the world if it would if it was a standalone business. That's crazy. Wow. They're really good. I have like the regular and the, the pros. I, I like upgraded. Do you have uh an iPhone? Oh. Yes, I have one iPhone. What? The only one I've ever had. <laughs> it's a three G. It's like the second. <laughs> The second one they came out with. Do you have uh, AirPods? I don't, no. Yeah. I actually right. like the corded headphones. Why and it, apparently they're coming back in uh, in style now um, because I wear them. Everyone kind of watches what <laughs> I do and <laughs> try to imitate it. Um, no, it's actually a sad reason why they're coming back in style, which is uh, people don't like being bothered. And so if you can actually see the cords, they figure someone's less likely to strike up a conversation. Whereas if you've got the AirPods in and especially if your hair is kind of hanging over, not a problem for you, Mm -hmm. Doug, but (laughs) people might not be able to see them. And uh, so, 
Yeah, but I I like the corded ones. I think they just have better sound generally. And everyone I know who has had wireless headphones, there's always a connection problem that happens at some point. That is true. That is true. Although for the the AirPods, definitely like the cordless. Definitely like the cordless. But here in the studio, everything's corded. I don't have any cordless stuff for microphones or headphones in here. But what do you think about the the cordless versus corded? Um, I love the cordless ones right up until a week ago when we bought a new car. So we bought this Chevy Bolt thing and the stereo has Bluetooth connectivity. So I'll be listening to my headphones. My cordless headphones with Bluetooth, and then Mindy will pull into the driveway, and then the phone will be like, fuck you, headphones, I'm going to connect to the car, and then she'll be listening to whatever I was listening to on my headphones, and everyone's confused and angry, so I have to figure that part out of the technology. I'm sure the problem is me. It's not the it's not the technology. I have to disable auto-connect or some other setting, yeah. but I do like the cordless ones, especially the noise-canceling ones, and mm-hmm. for kind of the reason Kyle said, like, don't, don't talk to me, people. <laughs> yeah. I'm all right with that. I was at the gym the other day and uh, something I noticed over the last few years is at gyms, everyone has their headphones on, they're on their phones. No one talks anymore Hmm. and it's like silent in the gym. And I kind of, I mean, I used to meet people at the gym and you would be friends with them because you worked out at the same time, but now it's kind of gone away. But just uh, in my gym that I go to, uh, this dude, he actually, he was like, hey, I see you in here all the time. I'm Nick. And I thought that was nice. Did you notice that in gyms too? Yeah, I guess. Well, you know what? The gym I go to, there are lots of seniors and I think they're averse to technology. So they never have headphones on and they're always hanging out with each other, going around the track or playing pickleball. Uh, So no, I probably don't see it as much. I guess with the younger folks, they usually do have the headphones on. All right. So. Is it my turn now? Yeah. It it is yours. What is? Okay. So in 2005, I'd been working for a couple of years and a couple of my friends were buying houses. So I thought, hey, I should buy a house. It's a good investment. So I searched around and found a house to buy. And I ended up closing like the end of the year of 2005. Horrible time to buy a house. I financed, I think... I don't know, 99% of it or something. I put a little money down, but not very much. And it ended up being a really horrible investment. I imagine I'd maybe be able to rent it out after I got married and moved out. And I did rent it out and I proceeded to lose like $300 per month for like two to three years. I was like, ah, maybe it'll turn around. I was like, I don't know what the fuck to do. So that did not work out very well. Eventually, in I think around 2012, I realized maybe I could try to refinance or get a different um, agreement with the mortgage company, but they were not hearing it. It didn't classify for any of the mortgage forgiveness programs that were out at the time. So I ended up letting it go into foreclosure. So the foreclosure piece was actually the best decision that I've made financially, but buying the house was terrible. And I mean, in hindsight, I had this spot, actually very close to Emory. I had this spot on, um, what is it? It was like in Virginia Highlands. It was like Virginia Avenue or whatever, 
one of the main roads. I had this basement apartment that I was paying like $500 a month. I should have just stayed there for like several years. I was traveling at the time. I wasn't there very often. It was a little dungeony, dark apartment and it was so cheap. And if I just would have stayed there, I could have saved so much money. Um, the foreclosure was a little tough to deal with. It's kind of hard to navigate or get good advice about strategically letting a mortgage default. Most people will tell you it's a bad idea. It probably is, but it worked out great for us. Like we didn't need to borrow any money or buy a house or anything like that. So my credit score was hardly impacted. After the foreclosure, it was like still 720, which seems crazy. Really? I thought that affected your credit score. It doesn't. It, might, it must have taken some kind of hit. I couldn't get another mortgage for a home. Okay. But um, everyone that tells you that is a bank. So, <laughs> so I would not trust the people that make money telling you that. Um, yeah. So basically everyone would say no. And yeah, your credit, the reason why, so I can elaborate. The reason why is usually you have other things that is a domino effect. So your house goes under your car, you have credit card debt, you have all these issues, but I didn't have any of that. In fact, I had no other debt at all. So once that went away, it didn't matter. And I was like, well, I'm not going to buy a house. I'm not going to buy a car in the next seven years. So my credit doesn't matter. And then afterwards I was like, oh, it didn't matter anyway. And did you know what day the, I assume you knew what you knew what day the bank was going to take over the thing. So the sheriff didn't come and put all your stuff on the curb, right? Like you were out of there by whatever date that was. Yes. And the thing is, I, I had already moved out and I was renting it out. So this goes a little deep. And because I can, I'm detail oriented, I could like look at the dates and I was renting it out the whole time that I wasn't paying. So I recouped a little money. I made like 14K. And then the big, the biggest issue is when you have a foreclosure, um, it's uh, the loan goes away, but you have to pay taxes on that. So I had to pay like 150K. Sorry, the mortgage was 150K. So I had to pay taxes on 150K, basically. Mm -hmm. So I had to pay a few thousand dollars. It was a good move. Got it. And I rented it out, which is ballsy, right? So I rented it out the whole time while I was not paying the mortgage. Yeah. I think it's good you talk about this, Doug, though. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of people in the personal finance space who um, a lot of the big names will actually say it's uh, morally or ethically wrong to uh, take out a loan and then go into foreclosure and not pay it back. And um, I just could not disagree more like that i think that the whole financial system is set up to benefit the uh wealthy companies the banks um uh financial advisors a lot of those folks at the um and it's the people actually consuming those products people taking out a mortgage and then finding themselves underwater who uh, often end up getting a really bad deal and it's interesting like being a lawyer and having gone to law school, you take a you have to take a course on contracts. And one of the things you learn about contracts is it's not illegal to break a contract. Uh, in fact, it's perfectly legal and uh, it's a right that you have under the contract in a way to breach it and then accept the consequences that flow from that. 
And so I see it the same way with uh, mortgages that uh, if you find yourself in a situation where it's actually better to uh, get it foreclosed on um, and you're okay with the potential impact to your credit score, um, yeah, there's no guilt or shame around that. When the when the bank gave you that mortgage, they wrote the terms of what happened if you stopped making payments and they agreed to them. Yep. Thank you, Kyle. You're the only person who's ever said that. I actually had, when I explained it to my parents, they actually had a little bit of an issue. My mom, like even more, she's like, it's just not right. And I was like, I read this horrible, long closing document that was like a hundred pages long. And it specifically outlined exactly what happens if I stop paying. And it's very clear. And that's what we all agreed on when we signed all those documents. So I was like, I have no issue with it. Also, I'm really morally flexible. So like, <laughs> it wasn't a huge stretch, but, but I did read the whole document and I was like, this is what we all talked about. So I, I think I'm fine with it, hmm. but legally, yeah, no, no issue. So how long did you have to wait before you could get another mortgage? Seven years. Um, but my wife just, the house that we bought in the meantime, she just bought it. So it was in her name. Okay. So we knew like it was going to be fine either way. And the, cause mm-hmm. the home that I'm talking about with the foreclosure, it was only in my name. Okay. And I'm sorry if I missed this detail, but did you try to negotiate with a bank? I think some banks would maybe reset the price or I don't even know what that's called. I did. And they said, no, oh. they just said, no, we, uh, no, we can't do anything for you. So I, I think I called maybe like four or five times and it was like the same thing every time. The other part, uh, people often worry about getting called by the mortgage company or other collectors, you know, they called one time, which I think they're allowed to do. But then if you send a certified letter to them to say, don't call me anymore, they legally can't call you anymore. So the, I just got the one, one call. They called one more time and then I said, did you know that you guys accepted a certified letter? And they said, no, we're really sorry. And I never heard from them again. And then they auctioned off the house um, on the court, uh, the, the court courthouse steps, mm-hmm. you know, metaphorically. I don't mm-hmm. think it was actually outside. Could you have tried to buy it back for a lesser price? <laughs> I think so. That would be, I wonder if there's any issue with that. That would, that would have been awesome. I think it sold for like 105. So I would like one, 150. I think it's a nice house now. It's over in Edgewood. So I don't know if you know the, the area mm-hmm. near little five points down mm-hmm. in Elena. So yeah, yeah. It was a up and coming neighborhood. I thought it was going to be a good move. Um, and I'll quickly throw in the other failure with a house was um, I kind of started house hacking and then uh, I uh, didn't do anything good with the money. So instead of like paying off more of the mortgage or saving or anything like that, I, I think I just, I drank it all up or I don't know what I did. It was gone. So I guess in hindsight, it's good. I didn't pay more down on the mortgage because I just let it go away anyway. So maybe if I put it in my 401k, it would have been a good move. All right. Any any tips for for people on uh, purchasing a house because their friends are? 
Yeah, it's, it cracks me up. I think the majority of people still think. Actually, I was talking to a fam- family member about this. She was bragging how she bought a house and what a great financial decision it is. I'm like, well, you know, if you, I understand the emotions behind it, but if you run the numbers, if you're talking about pure finance, that probably isn't the right reason to buy a, a house. If It's fine if it's an emotional, if that makes you feel good, but don't buy a house because you think it's a good investment because it's not. Yeah, I think the reason it tends to work out well for people is because it's forced savings. That money has to go toward your mortgage every month, and so it doesn't get spent on something else. And um, But yeah, when you run the numbers, it often doesn't pan out. And there's also, like Doug, you're mentioning uh, that when you bought the house, like because your friends were doing it, it there is a real pressure people feel that you got to be a homeowner if you're not a homeowner you're not quote living the american dream um and yeah and there's all sorts of ways the system is set up to encourage people to become homeowners um so maybe we're kind of segueing into one of my next financial (laughs) mistakes but i'll I'll mention when we bought our house 10 years ago i we're looking everywhere where do we have some money to put down even just to pay for closing expenses and things like that. We actually got a mortgage that didn't require a down payment, but there was still money we needed right off the bat, even just for repairs and fun things like drilling a new well at the house. And um, and I found out this retirement account we had, uh, it was a Roth IRA and one of the exceptions to the penalty provision if you're under 59 and a half is when you're making your first time homeowner purchase. And it's like, well, that's convenient. And so we <laughs> cashed it out and used that money to uh, pay for a new well and such. And I think it was just because that eight or $9,000, whatever it was at the time, was there and available and the rules allowed you to do it. And you look back on it and we could have found that money some other way if that hadn't been there. And who wrote those rules? Like it wasn't someone looking out for you or me or the actual first time homeowners. Um, it was banks and the real estate companies and real estate agents and their lobbyists who make a lot of money the more homes are sold and the more frequently they get sold. Man. How much money did you take out, Kyle? I, I think it was about nine grand and this was in 2013. And so if we had kept that... <laughs> there i mean it'd be uh probably at least double that now and continuing to build yeah man have you ever pulled money out early the very first job i had i cashed out my 401k i don't think i had more than a couple thousand bucks in there i that's that was obviously a mistake it probably would be like twenty thousand by now but that is the only time okay and i i literally did the same thing when i interned in college we had access and i think I, I want to say it may have just been in the stock of the the company. So it was Nortel. So it would not be a good company to keep. I think it was like a, a huge company for a little few years and then dot com bubble bursted. So, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I cashed that up. Okay. Kyle, do you have a, some other mistakes? Sure. Oh, I got lots <laughs> of how much time do we have? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So another one that comes to mind for me is uh, I mentioned getting $230,000 of loans forgiven from the public service loan forgiveness program. Yeah, and I think I also mentioned earlier, I had a full scholarship when I was an undergrad. And so 
all of those loans came from a one-year master's degree and uh, three years of law school. Um, and then the interest that built on it. When I went into the public service sector, uh, I just wasn't making enough money even to make the interest payments. And the way the federal loans were set up, they calculate how much you can afford to pay. And it was often only like $60, $70, $80 a month because they'd look at my salary and they'd see it was a family of five on that salary. Uh, and um, that was what they calculated. And so the amount I owed just kept going up every year. Um, and then when I got close to the 10-year mark, um, I was actually about 13 years out of law school at that point. And uh, the way the program's set up, you're supposed to be able to get all the loans forgiven after you've done 10 years in public service. But I lost those first um, two and a half years because I, I didn't look up what my payment would be if I started making it. I just was making so little, I couldn't imagine I could afford to uh, pay anything on them. And so I decided I just needed to wait until uh, I had a job where my law school would actually help me a little with the loan payments, and then I would figure it out and start making them. And looking back on it, I think I could have made zero dollar payments <laughs> during that oh, time, which really? I didn't even know that was a thing. I now know it is that if they do the calculation and they calculate you can't pay anything, you just set up the paperwork and you get it counts, those zero dollar payments. And so I could have had the forgiveness a full two and a half years earlier at no extra expense. For the, that's crazy. For the people that don't know about the program, can you just uh, summarize it really quick? Yeah, it's uh, it it's a great program. And actually, this conference I was at out here was uh, hosted by the American Bar Association. And one of the reasons I'm involved in the American Bar Association is because they lobbied hard to get this uh, program pushed through Congress um, uh, about 15, 20 years ago. And they put together this coalition, uh, bipartisan coalition, uh, to support it. And they basically went to legislators and said, look, we have all these law students graduating from the top uh, law schools across the country, and their loans are so, their payments are going to be so high um, that they feel like they don't have any choice other than to go into a big corporate law firm job uh, so they can just afford to make their payments. And they were seeing the best and brightest minds going all into corporate law and realizing this wasn't great for the country. Uh, we want a lot of the best and brightest lawyers also going and being prosecutors and being public defenders and working public interest jobs in government and for nonprofits, uh, working on things like consumer protection and environmental protection. So they created this program where if you do 10 years of public service and you make your payments throughout that time period, whatever's left on your loans at the end of it gets wiped out entirely. No taxes due or anything, which is good because I would not have enjoyed a tax bill on $230,000. <laughs> so it's a great program. Uh, and yeah, I, I benefited a lot from it. And I really, I couldn't have done what I have been doing and continue to do if that program weren't available. Nice. All right. Well, as we're wrapping up here, any other uh, quick mistakes you just want to hit, Carl? 
I stopped contributing to retirement accounts during the Great Recession for like two or three years. I just stuck my head in a hole like an ostrich and didn't pay attention, which was pretty stupid, like the best time to invest in my entire life. I complete, I did nothing. Yeah, I did the, the same thing, unfortunately, um, for a few years there. And the thing is, like when we were putting money in, in the early 2000s or whatever, much earlier for you, of course, but the... The thing is, it was flat. Like we were putting money in and then it d- wasn't doing anything. I'm like, I may as well not do that. So, you know, we, we put a little money in, but yeah, I stopped for a few years too. Pretty silly. All right. Any, any final ones, Carl? Uh, <laughs> Kyle? I, I, I'll just add, I, I think this happens a lot. It's probably one of the most frequent mistakes, particularly in the fire community, which is, um, a lot of us are optimizers and we're always trying to figure out like, what is the best way to do this? What's the best investment? When do I put that money on? And you kind of can go down this rabbit hole and in the meanwhile, you're not doing anything. And so I think that um, that's the biggest mistake I did for many years, many decades, just not really doing anything in part because I just didn't feel like I knew what to do. And um, uh, so I think you want to get informed, you want to learn what's generally a good idea. If you're going to invest money, it's good to know that low fee index funds are the best way to do it. Um, it's not investment advice, but uh, <laughs> it's uh, uh, pretty well known in this community. But actually starting the investments, if you wait a single month to just uh, figure out, well, is it this low fee index fund or that low fee index fund, the amount you lose in that one month might be more than whatever marginal gain you might've got from uh, figuring out the exact right thing to do. Yeah. Very nice. Well, as we wrap up, where can people find you? And you can tell us just a little bit about your book too. Who's it for? What's it about? Yeah. um, I'm most active on Twitter. So I I do have a website, personalfinanceauthor.com. But Twitter is where I like to be the, in terms of social media. And so my handle there is uh, at PF author. And um, yeah, the book is uh, a broad based kind of general view on personal finance and on investing. But I do a few deep dives in places. And one of them is um, if you have any interest in socially responsible investing, I have some information in there about um, how you can actually get low fee social responsible index funds now. And, uh, uh, but mostly it's just geared towards anyone who's wanting to learn more about this topic. And uh, I also did have younger people in mind. I tried to make it as entertaining as possible. And it's sure it's about 200 pages. Uh, so it's not too big of a time commitment. And um, yeah, it has a lot of stories in there about just how everyone gets this wrong. Uh, The three of us have just talked about how many times we've got it wrong. Everyone listening has lots of stories on their own about times they've got it wrong. And there's no shame in that, that, like I said, the system's set up to encourage people to do the wrong thing. And so I tried to just find the best information I got from the different sources I went to, put it in one place and make it as accessible as possible. The book is hilarious. I highly recommend it. If anyone's an HQ member, we have multiple copies of it there for people to read. Awesome. Yeah, we'll link up to everything for you, Kyle. And it's been a lot of fun. Thanks. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. This is Thank a you, blast. Kyle. Thanks for listening to the show. That was the Mile High Five podcast, and I'm Doug Cunnington, the Balder host, and Carl Jensen is the cool, sexy one. If you dig the show, please do three things for us. Number one, tell a friend, a family member, an enemy about the show. We really don't care who you tell. Maybe forward them a specific show that you know that they will like. It's the single most helpful thing that you can do to spread the word. It's like giving us a virtual high five and uh, actually we don't give high fives in, in person. So the virtual kind's pretty good. And more importantly, your friend or family member or even your enemy will appreciate the fact that you were thinking of them. Number two, make sure you're following or subscribed on your podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, YouTube, whatever you're using. And that way you won't miss a show. And number three, please leave us a rating and review. We read them on the show occasionally, and you might hear yours out there on an upcoming episode. Quick disclaimer, this show is not financial or legal advice. I'd actually be surprised if it sounded like it. It's really just for entertainment, and that's at least what we're hoping for. But seriously, get advice from professionals. Carl and I are just two guys with microphones that sit in my basement and talk. So we'll catch y'all next week. So I don't dress super nice. I mean, I think it's actually kind of crappy. I have crappy clothes mostly. But I was thinking about changing it up a bit, and I wanted to get fashion advice from Carl specifically because he looks like he has it kind of figured out. But luckily, Kyle, you're here too. <laughs> so so here's my dilemma, right? I kind of wear the same stuff all the time, and I have these... um they're Eddie Bauer, like hiking pants. They have like a lot of pockets in there so I can keep stuff in there, which mm-hmm. is super convenient. But they don't look as nice as even jeans, which I don't love jeans that much. But here's the thing. I have probably like five or six pairs of like pretty nice slacks from Banana Republic from when I had a job. So I haven't worn these in like a really long time, like eight years, but they're in great condition. They still fit well. And I wore, I wore a pair and I was like, they actually, you know, they don't feel that uncomfortable and they look nicer. So I thought about mixing it up. So I was going to ask you, Carl, what, what do you think about slacks? Do you think I should start wearing them? Maybe I could wear them tonight. What are, are slacks like khakis or what are slacks? Pants that don't try very hard. Okay. <laughs> so not jeans, not dress pants, something in between or? They are, they're dress pants. They're, they're suit pants, basically. They're suit pants. Okay. They're like wool, nice. Okay. And what was your question? If you should wear them tonight? Yeah, just wear them in general. Start wearing them like, hey, I, I could be presentable. I don't know, Doug. It seems like a step backwards to me. <laughs> yeah, and if they're made out of wool, that's hard to wash. It is. Yeah, that was one of the tough parts. I mean, you have to get them dry cleaned. So, um. Okay, so Carl, you're like, uh, it's a step back. Why is it a step backwards? Well, for one thing, I guess my mind is on summer. It's been pretty warm lately. And uh, I think my new goal in life, which I won't start right now, is to wear the most minimal amount of clothes possible. So, like we're going to go to Hawaii. You it looks like you're wearing minimal clothes right now. <laughs> I, I am. I was hoping you wouldn't point that out, but there, there we are. <laughs> Why are your shorts so short? So I didn't know they 
is that like a child's husky? Why are they so little? Uh, they're actually speedos. I'm <laughs> trying something new. I heard that's coming into fashion, and I I want to be fashionable above yeah. everything else. So one one other thing, and then I'll get your opinion, Kyle. <laughs> so the these slacks, not I mean, I don't want to wear them in the you know the heat of summer, but they're they're pretty comfortable and they're like fairly light and breathable. So they're not like winter slacks or anything. These are thin, like good material, that kind of thing. Um, so I wouldn't wear them in the summer, but for parties at HQ, maybe, maybe I check it out. Maybe I'll, I'll bust them out tonight. So Kyle, what do you think? Should I dress a little nicer? No. Okay. <laughs> no. And especially if you have to dry clean them, I mean, that's never worth it. Yeah. You're asking the man who wore Crocs to argue a case in front of the Vermont <laughs> Supreme Court about dressing up. After asking you, the one who just declared your new plan is to wear the least amount of clothes po possible, which I'm guessing you haven't run that by anyone in your family or friends. No, I don't think they'd, they'd approve, but maybe we should start a clothing line. It'll, it'll be like the opposite of fashion. What would be a good name for it? Like anti-fashion. That's too easy. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I think they did that in, um, Zoolander. What was it called? Derelict. Remember that? <laughs> All I remember from Zoolander was the gas station <laughs> fight. Doug, oh, have man. you seen the Kyle video on YouTube? I actually showed this to Kyle. It, it's called when your name is Kyle. I'll put a link to it on the YouTube, but it's just, um, Apparently, people named Kyle, and I, I don't know, the real Kyle here can attest to this. They drink a lot of Mountain Dew. They play with knives. They throw things and break things. Um, I'm trying to think what else, but maybe we should have a line of clothing based on the Kyle lifestyle. We could call it <laughs> Kyle Clothing, clothing with a K. It's <laughs> pretty good. Well, yeah, I went to the right people for the advice because, I, I mean, I don't want to wear nicer clothes. 